Hello, welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman. And I'm Cameron and whoever. <laughs> I'm sitting here drinking some very instant coffee. Oh no. Which uh, I was in a, I was in a big, big rush before uh, we started. I was like, it, it started raining outside really hard and I, I ran around closing all the windows. Didn't have time to make a real coffee. So I made some, some sample packs of Starbucks instant coffee that I saw sitting around. Ah, via, eh? Yeah, yeah, that, that thing. And? Well, and I mean, it smells like coffee. I don't know if it tastes <laughs> like it, but, but I mean, I've been kind of glad that I started, like, I didn't, I used to really, I went deep down the rabbit hole of good coffee for a mm-hmm. while, and it's still something I really enjoy. I love when coffee is amazing and delicious, but I found that I was not able to drink coffee as often as I'd like when it always had to taste good. There's drawbacks to being picky about it. So I just decided to kind of dive back into, well, yeah, cost and access. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of time that there's no, you know, good coffee shop. And I don't mean fancy. I just mean like where they put some effort into it and the coffee comes out tasting amazing. And so for context though, you're, you're not always home. So you're, yeah, exactly. you're, you travel a lot. So that's part of the problem for you. You don't have like yeah, a routine I mean, that you can if do. If I could walk to the day. place by my office every time, you know, uh, make it a little bit easier. But when I'm, yeah, if I'm in a, another city, I don't know where I am. Um, it's just way more convenient to be able to enjoy some mediocre coffee. <laughs> no doubt. Life, life is just more enjoyable. I think also the same probably applies to, to wine. Like when I see some people just hating non-fancy wine it's like you're kind of just missing out on life sometimes oh i don't think so what you only you're, you're good wine only kind of guy oh yeah i will not waste my time with bad wine <laughs> i'll drink beer <laughs> but will you drink bad beer yes hmm. but not a lot of it like very rarely for instance last week i had some 3.2 percent pbrs in utah that sounds pretty bad and you know what it in that moment because it was like 100 degrees it was it was great. I yeah. loved it in that moment. Well, you know, we all we all choose our battles. Hipster transition <laughs> complete. <laughs> but what's the what's the camera stuff we're going to talk about today? Well, um, I've been shooting a lot of color infrared film oh, and yeah, talking you're, you're, about it. Instagram's been all pink and blue lately. It has been pink and blue, and so uh, sorry or you're welcome. No, it's great. <laughs> and some people, some of our our friends on Twitter asked if we would talk about that a little bit. So I said, why not? But I think that you wanted to talk about something else too, didn't you? Yeah, but maybe we'll leave everybody in suspense for that one. Yeah, let's leave them <laughs> hanging. We'll see how yeah, bored they get. What's it going to be? <laughs> we'll, we'll see how boring this conversation about infrared is. I'm going to follow along on your Instagram right now, which is Cameron, K-A-M-M-E-R-U-N. That's correct. So everybody at home can follow along too. And uh, tell me all about it. What? How, how did this get started and what's it like shooting it? I've ne- For the record, I've never shot infrared film, so I know very little. Right. Okay, so I hadn't either. In fact, the only time I'd ever tried was a roll of the uh, HIE by Kodak, which is the black and white version. And um, I did something. I screwed it up. So it didn't even turn out. And so I'd never actually had a successful shoot with infrared film. And I think that, that whatever it was that happened with that initial role just really turned me off. It was just such a complicated mm. thing to do. And uh, a friend of mine, Paul Edmondson came into town. He, he comes to visit his father here in town and he, uh, 
brought me two massive bags of film. Do you remember when I Instagrammed those, all yeah, that yeah. film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was like a, a year ago. You know, in all that film, you know, I've been shooting a lot of it. And um, when I started digging through it, I was like, okay, wow, there's 20 rolls of EIR, which is the ectochrome infrared. And at first I was kind of like, what even is this? You know, the, the canister doesn't tell you what it is. All it says on the top is load and unload in complete and total darkness. Like more so than usual darkness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it said it on the, on the canister, you know? So I was like, okay, that's, that's intimidating. So uh, it took me a little while to get up the nerve. Cause I was like, well, you know, I looked around a little bit. I looked on like Flickr and stuff and, and I, to be honest with you, I wasn't not really all that excited about it. Wasn't that impressed. So I wasn't really too game. And then, you know, I, I thought about doing a portrait series and then I, you know, I looked up portraits on, on infrared. Oh, I'm going to do that. I've never done that. What does it, what does it look like? Well, for Caucasians, it's real bad because everybody turns like this really nasty, like jaundicey yellow. Right. And it's really not flattering. It's it's pretty horrible, you know. And then of course there's some other ones like for African American or African people. It's it's amazing, you know. For uh, black skin, it just looks so interesting. It, it can st- like depending on the, their skin tone, it can still have a little bit of a yellow tint, but it can look a lot more interesting. Um, and hold on, I'm looking for a name. Who is this guy? Richard Moose. <laughs> okay. Or no, Moss. It's either Mossy or Moss. And I'll share the link with you, but. Um, I had seen this recently, and then somebody shared it in our Stocksy forums, you know, while talking about my new series. And of course, this work is completely different from mine, but you can you can see how wonderful it looks on black complexions. Whereas, like with Caucasians, it's just not it's not lovely. So, what's the trick? You know, how do you get it to to do what you want it to do and enjoy shooting with it? So, the first thing is that don't not heed the message on the canister. If you come across this film, which is not even really that likely because it's, it's been discontinued since 2007. So it's not easy to find and oh. it's really expensive. If so you do is basically all of it expired then. Yeah. Everything. Oh. Um, well, oh, wait, I just well, found this Richard Moss stuff and it is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's stunning. And so, um, there's actually, there's, um, film photography project, they actually started re-rolling Kodak Aerochrome. Mm-hmm. But that stuff is what um, Richard Moss used. And you can buy some of that. And it's a 22 bucks a roll or something like that. Um, so that's probably what I'm going to move to if I continue down this journey when my film is Looking up. at this stuff, I mean, his, his work, a lot of it is seems to be sort of war journalism of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it would take guts to use infrared to shoot this stuff. I mean, to feel like you're going to really capture <laughs> what you expect uh, when you're shooting portraits of people absolutely, in, in such specific situations. I mean, I wonder if he was shooting both infrared and color almost as backup or <laughs> if you or just maybe felt confident walking in. Right, yeah. Honestly, I would love to know, now that I've seen that, what happened there. I have a hard time believing that he would have just shot that in infrared. That's, that would have been just such a gutsy and... Mm-hmm ill-advised. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a bad idea. I mean, it turned out well, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it turned out amazing. And, and I think that... Okay, so that's the trick to infrared, is that once you realize how it how it works, like what it affects and, and when it affects the way it does, I mean, you can basically paint with it. Okay, so first of all, like I said, heed the warning. Change the film in a, in a, in a changing bag. That's what I do every time now. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I put the film in, in a changing bag. I take it out. That means, yes, you have to carry a changing bag with you if you plan on changing your role. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's a pain. And that's what you do uh, when you do this kind of work. So get over it and just do it. But after that, so you can either choose to not use a filter at all, or you can use a couple different filters. Um, I personally am using uh, a deep orange filter. It's specifically, it's the B&W 040 orange. And um, well, take a step back for me. What happens without a filter? What does it look like if you just shoot it the way it is? Um, so if without any kind of a filter, it, 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 it has a very strong magenta cast overall. Okay. okay. And then when you, um, when you put a yellow filter on it, then it starts to even out a bit. It still has a bit of a magenta bias, but you, you can start to feel where it starts to normalize. And then with, uh, with the orange filter, the skies, you know, the blue becomes pretty much accurate, you know, fairly accurate, if not maybe a little too vibrant. Mm-hmm. And then things like gray will actually be more or less neutral. So it basically takes the some some kind of cast that's in there, some kind of bias that the film has. Exactly. And so okay. it filters out that. Um, and then it, it also, it, get, it allows you to, to get more of the red pink out of the, out of the, the foliage mm-hmm. or organic material, I should say. It's not just foliage. It's, it's kind of funny because like if you're, if you're wearing a cotton shirt and you take a picture of a person wearing a cotton shirt, that shirt will turn bright red and infrared, infrared light. Yeah. Wait, so what are all the things that are radiating infrared light? Plant, plant, plant-based materials. Is that yeah, all? It's, it's like organic materials <laughs> for some reason. Hmm. Cool, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but not all of them. I mean, um, like tree trunks, you know, tend to turn some pretty weird colors. Yeah, it's just the leaves. That... Yeah, it's just the leaves. Yeah. Weird. Okay, so what are what are the, what what are the next tricks to making this work? All right. Well, there's another. You can also do a red filter, and that'll make everything like look, you know, post nuclear, and it's kind of nasty if you ask me. But regardless of what filter you use, do you generally end up with a similar? palette like is it still so you know no. pink and blue mm, sort of not really so it, it gets a little bit confusing so it really depends on on the amount of infrared light that's available when you shoot this film you want to go and shoot it at the times that you would never go shoot otherwise mm. so Night? namely like noon <laughs> oh okay because you just want to be really bright yeah you want you want the the light to be well it depends on what what tone you want like if you look at the the first one that I posted on my Instagram account, is that the one that you framed eventually? Yes, exactly. Yeah. With that one, the conditions were perfect for to create that. So that is very direct sunlight hitting those trees, and that's just what works with this film. Hmm. Like you'll see that when the sun's not hitting the leaves directly, it'll just go to black. Where a lot of times when you shoot. A situation like this in a, a digital situation like you'd still see the green in the in the dark shadows so that is actually an interesting tool well so how much more of this film do you have like how much longer are you going to be able to be shooting it and i guess how much longer will the world be able to be shooting it um not much for for both you and the world both yeah so i have i mean i guess it depends right i mean that's why i wanted to talk about it Cause like, I, I want people to, to start talking about it if they like it. 
and maybe somebody can come up with a new one. That sounds impossible. <laughs> so in any case, <laughs> so I have eleven rolls, which you know no, for this film is is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and you can just do regular positive processing for this, like yeah, film. it's the same as slide film. Actually, you know what the thing though is, I know that with at least with the Aerochrome, which is what the film photography project is using, I, I believe that they they recommend that that you can. Well, they don't recommend, but they say that you can you can either do C forty one or E six, mm-hmm. whichever you want. Oh, okay, but are you going to use all of the film that you have now, or are you going to like stretch it out for ten more years? I'll probably get through it in the next year or two. It just depends. I mean, I think that, you know, during the winter, it's not going to be very exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to really want to pull it out. I mean, I'm, maybe I'll get crazy and, and try something out, but like, I can't imagine it, you know, like right now it's, it just seems like it's great for foliage and where I live, that, that is what we have, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you this time of year, is, it's oppressive. You know, there's so much green <laughs> around that like, I'm you just need like, to throw a little pink in there. Yeah, and it makes it all everything so much happier. All right. Well, my topic suggestion today was was much more general, and it's something that we've we've touched on before that we do slightly differently. And it's how many photos is enough photos <laughs> for for every circumstance for whatever it is you're shooting. How many does it take to get the the right one? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously this is, this is the kind of question that you'll get a different answer from every photographer and every photographer will have different answers for the different circumstances they're shooting in. But I thought we'd explore a little bit of our personal experiences and preferences with this and how we make the decisions about how many photos does it take to get one good photo. I mean, to the, the thing we have touched on before, if people haven't listened in the past, I shoot uh, a lot of volume, like many, many thousands of photos. So mm-hmm. we, uh, actually, okay. Okay. This isn't normal, but the other day we were shooting an Instagram photo for Anya and she was on a floaty in a pool, like, you know, a big inflatable thing. So, mm-hmm. and the sun was coming in and out and she just was kind of floating in circles around the pool uncontrollably. So we really had little control over what was happening and she needed one Instagram photo. And we kept shooting and shooting and shooting on, on rapid fire on the little Canon G7X. And at the end, I looked at the memory card and we'd shot 4,500 photos. Oh. <laughs> for one, which for one Instagram. I mean, they were all effectively the same photo, but we'd just been sitting there with me holding the button. Like, I just kind of kept pushing her out to the middle of the pool, holding the button down, and then, you know. Uh, Was this the, um, the swan floating? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. By the way, just in case anybody's curious, Anya Bonyeka is is uh, Tyler's lovely wife. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's we, what he's talking about. Exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, so okay, that's not normal, but it just it was <laughs> shocking, and uh, maybe why I thought about talking about this. Uh, and fortunately, for seems like a pretty good reason. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately for our for for me, um, she does the editing as in the selecting of the photos, especially yeah. when um, it was her decision to shoot so many in the first place. So <laughs> uh, yeah, she's, she spends that time, which um, that's the big cost to shooting volume is there is always a time cost on the other end. That's right. That even if you're not carefully looking at every single photo, it just, it, you can't do it as quickly. Well, you could, I mean, you could just glance over it all. And I've done this before when I have a lot of volume, and the final photo wasn't very 
important. Like I don't need to find the best, best one. I'll just scan through the thumbnails and be like, okay, nobody's blinking here. There's smiles. Great. Let's choose this. Yeah. Um, but if it matters, if the photo is important in any way, you, you have to take a close look at them. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And then the other forever. Oh my God, it really does. And the other cost can be hard drive space, especially in that we have, there's a lot of day shoots that just don't get used ever. Um, so they, they go unsorted and uh, so our more normal numbers for when we're shooting stuff for her blog, let's say uh, that will usually have about 15 published photos in it by the end. And we'll shoot about 1500 is pretty normal. So it's about a hundred to one. And when that a shoot goes unsorted, that means there's one day with 1500 photos or more just sitting on the hard drive uh, kind of forever. And I mean, so that represents <laughs> you know, what would otherwise be like a few weeks worth of photos. I, I, we don't keep that, right? We you trim that probably down. probably license to, a lot of that stuff. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we'd still only want to license the good ones, though. Like, by the end, we only try to keep, you know, maybe, like, f- we keep 40 or 50, and we use 15. You know, we can just kind of yeah. keep a few around as, like, if we ever wanted to go back and have another option. But um, we really try to trim it down. So th- that makes up a huge chunk of hard drive just photo shoots that are not going to be dealt with. So it's like the least important shoots and the most expensive hard drive space shoots. And I don't know that, yeah, that's just another cost of it. Yeah. I don't think I have a lot of those. I think yeah. I have some of those with film that are you know? for 1500. No, just in terms of photos that probably won't end up getting used or, you know, whatever oh, okay. they, I shot them. Maybe I get like a shot or two per roll that mm-hmm. I actually, do anything with yeah i i I have a lot of stuff just sitting around it's hard it's hard to get to it all especially with so much volume yeah i mean and it becomes like a task that you somewhat unwilling to to step into yeah well you know going back to something that's a year old as opposed to dealing with the 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 shoot that you just did last week you know but what what about you what do you feel like and also I'll, i'll talk about some other circumstances that is the most stuff we shoot is for the blog um Obviously it's different for weddings or whatever, but what about you? So for me, I I tend to shoot, you know, there's like four things I shoot. I shoot, um, events. I do, uh, advertising or commercial work, I should say. Mm -hmm. And then I also do stock and then I do personal. So for event shooting, because you're always looking for that moment that means a little bit extra to your client, that's when I shoot like mad, you know, like actually I'll set up my camera to go on to continuous, if not continuous high speed, yep. uh, just depending on what I'm shooting. Um, for instance, the last, the last thing I shot, well, it was actually the second to last, I shot a lot this weekend. So, um, I shot a, a theater production and, um, it was a pretty big deal for all these cause it was for, um, a bunch of kids. And there was like a couple hundred kids involved in this. And like, you you know, the, the clients like, you know, we need as many smiling faces for each one of these kids as you can possibly pull off. Yeah. So when you think about this in a situation like a theater, uh, it's dark, you're limited to where you can move around and, you know, you have to use a telephoto lens or at least I did in this situation. Most of the time that's what happens. Yeah, depending where you, you are, yeah. Yeah, so I usually use a 70 to 70 to 200. And most of the time the ISO is like if you're lucky and the stage is fairly bright, you can get as low as ISO 400, but that's pretty rare. 
And for this one, like everything was between 1250 and 2000. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you really have to keep the, the shutter speeds fairly high because not only is not only are you shooting with a telephoto, but they're also moving around pretty quickly and they're kids. So yeah. they're unpredictable. So in that occasion, I'm not at all concerned with the number. I'm concerned with getting as many sharp photos of kids smiling as possible because that's what I've been paid. That's to actually do. a pretty perfect example of when you just you have no idea what the moment is. You can watch all you want and like try to look for the right moment, but you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is is that like it's kind of a lot of pressure, right? The client says we need this and you know this is what we want and then you you say when you say okay, you you know you you might not really understand how many people are involved, right? And the, like, well, and none of them in the moment are concerned about your photo. Oh no, none of them no, are no, trying no. to coordinate between each other to all smile at the same time. No, you don't even exist in that moment. So while you're doing that, while you're dealing with the pressure of like, oh, I need to get a picture of every single kid with a smile on their face. Some of those kids aren't going to smile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just that's one factor. But the other thing is when you're in that moment and you're sweaty and you're under under fire and stress and you're shooting really fast, if you don't occasionally make sure that you're getting the exposures right, then you know, you're gonna end up with bursts of photos that are all like brutally overexposed or underexposed. Oh, have I ever done that? So, you know, you have to you have to really evaluate the situation as you go and get it right as quickly as possible and figure out am I gonna have to spot meter this? Am I going to have to, you know, center meter this or matrix? Or do you go manual? Do you need to switch back and forth between manual and some form of automatic throughout? Yeah, how often are the lights changing? Yeah. And usually in theater, it's constantly. So you have to be fast. You have to be on your toes and confident. Well, and even in uh, runway scenarios where the lights are static, so the, they just turn the lights on and they leave them on, mm-hmm. a lot of except for the highest end shows, the light is not even across the runway. So as people walk towards you, they're falling in and out of light. So if you want, as you do this rapid fire thing, they're going way under and then way overexposed. Yeah. So trying to find you basically, basically you have to lock it into manual and find something that's in between where you can recover an overexposed image or an underexposed image. Yeah. And, you know, hope for the best. And this is also an occasion where the back button focus is in constant use. You know, how, why is that? Why do you use it in that case so much? I mean, I, I actually don't use it at all. So, well, for one, in like in, in a situation like this, I'm spot metering because, like, with this show, there was mm-hmm. a lot of spotlights, mm-hmm. and so the background is super dark. So you can't do like a, a matrix or a center meeting mm-hmm. or metering because it's just not. You know, you might get a couple of them right. I'll tell you how I deal with that which is totally the opposite so it's interesting for me to hear that you do do it that way um i never switch to spot metering almost mm-hmm. never ever um if i'm on an automatic mode i basically just ride exposure compensation and like take a sample photo and i leave it in matrix and ride up and down if it's like oh well the, the matrix reading is way too bright or way too dark mm-hmm. i then over or underexpose to compensate for it so yeah and you know, just to just to fulfill what I the, the rest of what I'm doing, I'm, I, I almost always in these situations shoot an aperture priority, mm-hmm. um, and then use the exposure compensation as well to deal with okay. stuff. And yeah. I can manage that really quickly. And I mean, it really you have to get to the point where you're not thinking about it, like it's just an automatic impulse, mm-hmm. uh, which that's a challenge in and of itself. You have to do it a lot to get to yeah. that point where well, that's you're the, the challenge of it is just shooting all the time. <laughs> and yeah, and so. 
but I didn't. I don't think I quite answered the question with the uh, back focus button. So the back focus button. I, I think that I. I know. I've, I know. I talk about this a lot. I'm not sure if we've talked about it on the show though. But um, it, I'm a big fan of. It. I never used to use it when I was not shooting action stuff. And now that I'm, you know, I shoot all these theater shows and different events, like I tend to use it all the time. Um, and it's because, you know, I want to get the focus with my thumb and then to take the exposure with my, with my index finger mm-hmm. rather than having to press twice with my index finger. Yeah. This is another place that I think maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Cause I know a lot of people shoot it the way you're describing and I don't, but I, um, you I should, should try, I should try, both you should try things, it yeah. at least, you know, and see if it works for you. I remember I tried it when I got my first SLR. Um, I shot like that for maybe the first year or something, but mm-hmm. that was so long ago. I just, the habit didn't stick and I, I, I never do it anymore. So, well, you know, you could always, well, I don't know how you could actually break your camera. So like I, my F100, my Nikon F100 had the, uh, the shutter trigger is actually, it doesn't connect <laughs> to the focus to, to the autofocus anymore. Like it's well, broken. I, th- I think that there's preferences for that stuff. Like you can move the, I don't know, actually I'd have to check. I don't know if you can disable it. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you want to dig that far into your controls, I guess. I mean, well, I guess. But I'm also going to say I'm not. I mean, because there's something to be said as well for being able to hand the camera over to somebody else and they can just take a photo. Like it's something I run into often enough that. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you take my picture? Uh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or do you want me to take a picture with your camera? Uh, yeah, I'd like exactly. to, but <laughs> yeah. then I have to explain to you my ridiculous your, setup. Your circumstance of, uh, of, of action shots and smiles, though, reminds me of... Actually, I mean, I didn't think of this before we started, but I could have built this whole show around my biggest pet peeve of when I'm being shot, when somebody else is taking my photo, mm-hmm. when they just take just way too few. This is so common. And even like photographers that I'm familiar with their work, they'll kind of just sit there and like setting it up and they're like, okay, click. Um, okay. One second. Uh, can you turn a little left? Click. Okay. Now. And like, I know what I look like and I make a lot of dumb faces and there's a pretty good shot (laughs) or a pretty good chance that in that moment that, you know, maybe I was, my posture was, in the right way, but I was definitely blinking or I was definitely just sneering or, you know, it just, it wasn't right. Like if I sort through photos of myself later, I know that there's just so many moments where I don't look quite right. Presentable. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, there's something to shooting slowly, like that feeling of like a portrait where everything's very set up and very intentional. And like the way you'd shoot on film, you can be careful and slow down like that. But if there's any sort of action, like if the person's taking a step or, or anything, just like, just please take more photos if it's digital and you can, because yeah, there's no reason not to. Yeah. And the buy just, fast cards. Yeah. And you're just probably not going to get the best moment if you only take one. So yeah. at, at the very least for every time I'm taking one photo, I always, um, or almost always have it on, what do you call it? Continuous. And we'll take either one or two or sorry, two or three photos for every composition for every potential moment, because you know, the first one may be the blink and the second one is eyes open. And the first one may be the perfect smile. And then the second one is sneering. Like it's exactly it really can make the difference. And also a big deal, right? You're paying a lot of money for those high frame rate shutters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put them to use. Yeah. I overshoot, like I'm saying, I mean, I take too many photos and, uh, did I, wait, yeah, I talked about this on the show that my, um, 
shutter blew out on my 5D Mark III, right? <laughs> that I had to replace it because it burnt out. Right. Um, but it lasted more than like almost five years of shooting really, really heavily. And it was $250 to repair it. So amazing. Um, I have no regrets. <laughs> no, I mean, you got your, you've really, you know, used it for what it's worth. Yeah. So fantastic. I don't know. It just, it really boggles my mind. There was, um, there was one time somebody was shooting portraits of Anya and I for, for like an interview in a magazine. It's like, that's super cool. Like it's, it's really neat that somebody would have any reason to take my photo that they're going to put it out in public. I'm not a model. Mm -hmm. This doesn't happen often to me. And they came by (laughs) and just took a dozen photos (laughs) on a digital camera and they just didn't turn out very like, I mean like the composition was nice. Like the light was right and it was just not acceptable. And we tried to write the magazine desk. We could reshoot it. Um, There wasn't time. And uh, yeah, I I mean, I, it really frustrates me. I already don't want to be in front of the camera. So yeah. So just please make it easier for me and for, and have sympathy on your subject. Yeah, because that's that's the case with a lot of people. I know that that's the case for me as well. I can't hold it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't know when I'm making the when I'm smizing and when I'm not. Like I think I know, but I'm usually wrong. And also, I think that this might be just my own paranoia because I I'm like you and I hate my photo being taken. But I always feel like in that moment when they're taking that one or two photos, like I'm always expecting myself to do the wrong thing, right? I have a friend that would just perfectly blink for every photo. He had this sixth sense that he could feel the shadow. Yeah. Over (laughs) and over, like repeatably. Um, And I mean, it went on for years. Like this was like impressive. Yeah. (laughs) He was obviously cueing in like maybe the autofocus like triggered some. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, I think it, a very narrow fraction of a second. Yeah. <laughs> it's like how in the But I can kind of relate. I mean, I feel like when I sense the photo's about to happen, that's when I'm probably going to do the stupidest thing with my face. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So, yeah, please, everybody, you don't have to take millions of photos, but just take a couple. Or especially when somebody hands a camera to you that's like a stranger in front of a national monument. Um, you know, it's like, you can take a photo of us. Please take five or 10 photos, <laughs> just even if they aren't expecting it, they will thank you because there's a pretty good chance. The first one sucks. Yeah. And photographers, you know, like this, this is also like if you're shooting advance and, and you do post portraits, don't just shoot one and say, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. You know, shoot like at least two, if not three or four. And cause there's a lot of occasions where you're going to get a blink in, you know, if you have four or five or six or seven, eight people, you have to make sure that you have a couple to, for them to choose from Absolutely. Or that everybody's eyes are open. Even shooting on film. Like I haven't done many events. I don't I shoot film for jobs often at all, but when we were shooting one wedding where it was, it was a mix, it was film and digital, but there's quite a bit of film. All of the key shots have at least two or three frames. There's no way I'm going to take like the, the photo of the groom and bride with their parents and only hope that that one image, nobody blinked or blew it. Um, Absolutely. And also you're not. in focus. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, every time it's like, even though I'm slowing down and I need to be careful with the shots, I know I'm not going to take very many. I focus, uh, kind of look at everybody and hope that they're prepared, press the button. Then I refocus, double check my exposure, make sure 
like go through the whole process again and take a fresh photo that is different and that I hopefully canceled out any of the stupid mistakes I made on the first one or any, <laughs> you know, stupid faces that the, the subject is making. Right. So I, especially if it's for a client, if it's just for fun and it's on film, you don't have to worry so much, but somebody's paying you for this. Please take two photos, protect your reputation. Yeah. But when, when you, when you shoot film, how much do you shoot per image? Do you, like if it's a landscape, do you take two photos? Um, I usually, I usually do take at least two. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to, sh- I don't think I could say that I really bracket. <laughs> like, I don't think that would be a, a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. I think I, I recommend it for sure. Like I'm not anti-bracket. I think it's a really good idea, but I, I think that I, most of the time feel pretty confident in my metering um, and, and just go really slow, mm-hmm. you know, and frame it as well as I can and make sure that the shutter speed is going to capture it sharp and kind of hold my breath through the whole thing. And so I don't I don't tend to get too snap happy with film. It's actually that's the moment where and I think I've talked about that a lot. It was where that's when I want to slow down and and really mm-hmm. take my time with it. And there's a there's a kind of, you know, zen, I guess that that goes with that if you can tolerate that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely nice sometimes. You know, especially like if I'm shooting my mammy a seven you know like I, I go real slow with that thing i try to be very deliberate and even still like i only get you know one or two shots per roll that i like <laughs> it's just hard you know yeah. like it, it's just a completely different thing so but you know I, I wanted to also touch on when we shoot food for stock you know how much do i shoot then you know because depending on how many setups that we have you know, I try to get the rent, you know, I guess the, the full coverage shots, like the tighter shots, the wider shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, whatever steps are being taken, you know, so in, in some shoots I might, you know, I might only take, you know, 80 or a hundred shots, but that's, that's probably the lowest yeah. that it would ever be. And this is for something that's static too, right? Like totally static. Some... Well, mostly static. I mean, there might be some where like through. there's a hand moving or something, you know, doing something. But how many do you take per Photo, like per composition? Usually just one or two. Okay. But it just really depends. Like if, you know, I'll go sort of deliberately at that point too, because I know that if I don't get the shots that I want, then I'm wasting my time. Mm -hmm. And if the subject is really good, you know, then, then I'm, I'm super deliberate about how I'm framing it. Right. And I'm checking every photo to make sure before I move on. And so, you know, I usually feel like I'm getting the photo I want and not just shooting extra arbitrarily but not quite to the same degree as I do with film. So when I do a client shoot, you know, and I'm working with people again, but it's like, you know, maybe like a lifestyle shoot or something like that. Thousands. Yeah. 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 But the, the danger in that, which I think is important to say is the danger when you're doing that is that when you go through and edit those photos out to send to your client, do not send them. (laughs) All of those photos. No, I I mean, it's a policy for us that we are only sending photos that we would feel comfortable publishing. Like every photo that they're going to look at needs to be good enough to be the final photo. Because if you have one in there that you think is the mediocre garbage, like it's just filler. So they know that you had coverage. That's Mm -hmm. the one they're going to pick. So make sure that you feel (laughs) confident about everything that you're submitting. Yeah. That's the worst too. Is yeah. when they they when you get a published photo and it's like 
you think it's the worst one. Yeah, the the one you wished they hadn't picked. Yeah, yeah, that's the worst. Um, I was going to say yeah. though that uh, on the side of shooting film, uh, since like I said, I've never done a lot of film for clients, but the when I see people doing this in behind the scenes footage or movies um, on like say fashion shoots, there's they're never conservative about their film. They just oh, shoot no. and shoot and shoot and change roles. And they have an assistant handing them a new back with a fresh role in it. And they're not concerned about that. That's the lowest, that's the cheapest part of the shoot, <laughs> like relative to what's happening around you. And even in, in a professional shoot, like, I don't know what your day rate is, mm-hmm. but if it's anywhere, if, if you're getting paid more than a thousand dollars for this job, whatever your film costs are, doesn't matter. Relatively speaking, you know, just spend the yeah. money and get a few extra photos. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I don't do a lot of that stuff with film. Yeah, it's made, it, so. this may not be relevant to advice anymore uh, since there's so few people doing it. But I, I mean, there are there definitely are. I mean, there's there's people shooting weddings on film, and you know, I always wonder, you know, like how many roles you're going to go through, especially if you're doing like medium format Oof, weddings. Yeah. Like, yeah. wow, and people do that. Yeah, that adds up. Like, wow, you take your contact six, four, five to every wedding. <laughs> Not only does it weigh like a, as much as a truck, but you only get, you know, 15 shots per roll or whatever. Yeah. A funny other side effect of shooting high volume is that it also kind of breaks a lot of software because it's just not what they expect you to do. Um, I mean, great example is just the photos app for your iPhone. Um, if you start having big chunks of 50 of the same photo, uh, this is not how they expect you to organize things. <laughs> um, and they sort of don't accommodate, they don't accommodate bursts very well. Like if you do the burst mode where you hold down the shutter, um, for one thing, I find that it shoots kind of too fast for most Way circumstances, like, yeah. which is amazing. Like, not that they should have made it slower. I don't, yeah, I don't kudos know. Kudos to the, yeah, to the it's, achievement. It's incredible. <laughs> But it's more, it's as much more than I need. Like I find if I just press my thumb quickly, it's, that's the kind of speed I need. Um, and also that I need to be able to see all the photos in a grid to make the selection a lot of the time. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, when you, you hold down burst mode and it's too fast and then they're all buried inside of one image. And if you press the, your thumb over and over, then you just have this massive grid, uh, and you have to remember to sort through them. Or again, you have these big blocks of the same photo over and over, uh, taking up memory on your, on your iPhone. And I just wish a software developer over there or that software developers in general also had this problem so that they would build more features specifically for me. Yeah. Okay. Software developers build more stuff specifically <laughs> for Tyler. Yeah. And then, and, uh, Hit me up on Twitter once you do so. Yeah, and then we'll talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's move on to stuff we're into this week. Do you have well, anything? Why don't you start it off? Oh, yeah. I wrote them down at the beginning of the show this week because yes. last week I couldn't remember. Uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, wait. I had two and I only wrote one thing down. I didn't even write it all down. Oh, I'm so bad at this. Come on. Okay. Well, the one thing, this is totally targeted for you. This is a, a Cameron Whitman recommendation. Awesome. Um, I don't know how much you read or what you like to read at all. Um, sure. but I recently read song machine by John Seabrook. Okay. And this is maybe it's the anti Cameron recommendation because <laughs> it's all about the writing process of the biggest pop songs. Um, 
and I know you love pop music more than anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's, is what I liked about it is that it starts to go into interviewing and talking to the songwriters behind the biggest hits of the last 20 years. And I found that it humanizes the process a lot. So I think your perspective and, you know, my, my perspective as well, but maybe to a lesser extent is that like manufactured music is frustratingly not the same as, um, I don't know what, like more authentic, artist driven music, right. That feels like it, yeah, it's more personal good. comes. It's, it means more because there's more intention behind it as opposed to when there's just like an or anonymous just, factory pumping out hits. Yeah. Formulaic hits. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed hearing the perspective of the group of people that are pumping, pumping out these hits, but he, hearing them talk about it, you're like, that would actually be a really fun job. Like the one anecdote I really liked is he's talking about, uh, oh, which, which writer, um, Max something, something that, uh, did a lot of the Backstreet Boys stuff. And he wrote, um, oh, right. he, he was sitting there listening to maps by the yeah, 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 which is, you know, an indie song that became a, a mainstream hit. And he was talking about how frustrated he was listening to the song because it has all these really great melodies and good hooks in it. And it builds up and there's this sense of building. A lot of the song is like moving upwards and like getting forward momentum. And just when it's supposed to climax, it, it doesn't, it falls back down. And it's totally true with this song. Like I, I like that song too, but it does yeah. have this like falling problem of that. It never delivers on the buildup. And um, <laughs> so he was just sitting around and started writing what he wanted as his ideal chorus to that song. Uh, and that became um, Kelly Clarkson's big hit uh, since you being gone, um, <laughs> which, so now if you listen to those songs one after the other, the, since you've been gone chorus is like the chorus to maps. Uh, and I don't know. I just, I really like that. He's like, this is what I see as being broken about this song. I'm going to fix it and write my own song. Um, and I don't That's- know, like, it might only frustrate you more to hear the stories behind a lot of these, but I, I thought it was really entertaining at the very least. Uh, not really. I, I, I like I like it when things are dissected like that. Mm-hmm. It gives you a clearer understanding, and, and maybe it, it even gives you a better appreciation yeah. for it. Yeah, especially the good stuff. I mean, I, I hope you can acknowledge that there have been really great pop songs in the last while, well, even if they come from a huge machine sometimes. I mean, I, like since you've been gone, for me, I've always thought that's a pretty perfect pop song. I think it's great. I think most of Taylor Swift stuff is pretty great songwriting. Like I, I don't put it on repeat, but I think it's, it's good pop. Um, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate a good song just as much as anybody, yeah. but I, I tend to I don't know, like the, the things I don't like about, about that kind of pop music is not so much the songwriting as it is the performance. Right. Because it feels so artificial on that stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, yeah, like, I've seen a couple lip synced co- concerts this year and it really sucks the energy out of it. I, well, I mean, last time we were in Vegas, I think it was last year, but uh, Anya grew up being a big Britney Spears fan. Mm-hmm. So we went to go see Britney Spears in Vegas and it was so boring. <laughs> Not just because <laughs> I don't like Britney Spears. But because it was all it was all lip synced, lip synced, and she is so sleepy, and Yuck. 
you know, feels pre-retired and yeah, they're just, there really is, there's no energy behind it. Yeah. And she does not I care mean, about what's happening. I've, I've gone to a lot of concerts. I've seen, you know, I've seen Prince, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I just can't settle for, for some crap, yeah. you know, like it's just, but on that, I'll also say that like, I'm going to throw out this cliche that, that most of my favorite singers can't even sing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's how they're delivering it and what they're saying right. that that touches me. Yeah. You know, yeah, like that's totally. what. It, yeah. So, it, it kind of feel like that's somewhat the case with a lot of photography as well. Just where, you know, if it's if it's too slick, and I can kind of see it mm-hmm. and peel the layers, like that doesn't really interest me too much. Right. Or if it's, you know, slick for all the wrong reasons, you know, when it it wasn't even, it doesn't even do it any good to be slick. There's some really interesting, if you go back and go back and listen to Since You've Been Gone, and there's some really interesting stuff you can dissect in how they fake roughed it up, you know, like put um, like faux vintage on it of some of the guitar scrapes and the little bits of moments of feedback that's just at the right moment that is... Too perfect. Oh yeah, it's it, it's really it's interesting because it's like there is just such subtle detail in where they put in those little bits of faux authenticity, <laughs> fake punk. Uh, so yeah, uh, <laughs> so um, that's that's why you know that's why I love listening to stuff like Jimi Hendrix because you know when you hear a flub, it sounds like this this moment of brilliance, yeah, and right. really it was an accident. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's. In fact, with you know, in uh, in my band, my former band's record, um, there was one of our songs where our one of the guitar players did this really wild shit, and he, you know, he was gearing up to do it, and you could you could kind of feel the tension because I think he already screwed it up once or twice, and he had to do it again, and then in the, this last try, I don't know what he did because we were all in the control room when he was playing this part. And he dropped his guitar, you know, awesome. and, and we were all like, yeah. we all stood up in the, in the, in the studio. And we're like, yes, you know, freaking out. Like it was, you know, like the, the, the touchdown of the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. you know, the, the it's deciding like touchdown. a mic drop, but a guitar drop. It, it was amazing. Like, it was just like, how did you do it? And he, he comes out and he's just like all red faced. And I think he was angry mm-hmm. and we were like, that was amazing. And he was like, I dropped my guitar. You know, we were like. That's incredible. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. And it was just, it was, that's what I love, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of, we've referred to this previously, but there's a flub in our intro music that I like. Yeah, totally. The, <laughs> it's like the it's extra like strum time. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes it, it makes it nice. Yeah. Especially you know? after you've heard it a hundred times, the more you exactly. hear it, the more the mistakes feel intentional. Yeah. Because, because every time you, you keep waiting for it to resolve on, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, and and then it's always late, and yeah. you're like, oh, it's always interesting because it's, it's well. All late. of a sudden, if it was correct, you'd be like, oh, what's there's something wrong here, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think that actually going back to to the infrared film, which I think that that's that's really that's what I've been into. So I, I don't think I should really go anywhere else. Yeah, I think it has to be. All right. So I'll just I'll just tell you a couple last things about it, um, and and, and it ties into what we were just talking about because. You know, I can't help but want to have things be perfect because it's just, you know, I've, I've been working at my craft for so long that, you know, if I shoot a roll of black and white film and, and I screw it up, like, I feel like a fool, 
you know, like if it wasn't how I intended it to be, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't mean that there can't be some happy accidents, but when I screw it up, I feel like an idiot, you know? Um, so that's really one of the interesting parts about this, this infrared film is that it's so, it's so old that you can't control it. So it it's going to kind of do what it's going to do. And you can make some, some, you know, educated guesses on, on how it might react. But at the end of the day, like you don't really get to control it. Right. And that's also what seems to be so interesting about it. It's like this film is in really bad shape. You know, if you look at the, 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 the film itself, it's like I said, it's super thin. It's just not good. <laughs> and when you, when I scan it originally, you know, it's, it's not good. And I have to like do a restoration project on it. Cause this film is just, it's not good. Hmm. And, you know, at the end, you know, I end up with end up with a with a result that's it's more interesting because of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I mean, I even see it in professional. There's still professional film shoots that the slight out of focusness of it, the more intense grain, like just little. T- technically, they are problems, mm-hmm. but they become the aesthetic, and they become what what draws you to it. Yeah, and there's also that irreplicatable product that comes out of it you know like you 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 know you can never do that again it's one of a kind yeah and that's that's the coolest 